Welcome to Rich in Life, a podcast for anyone looking to be entertained while picking up a few tips on life, luxury, and resilience. And now your host, Rich Irani. Well, hello. Hi. How are you? I got scared. I thought I was just going to get that gorgeous picture of you. I wanted to see you in person. I'm sorry that the the reality here of it all. <laughs> the reality is perfection. The reality is perfection. So I, I have to tell you, I have to jump right into this because yeah. you were one of my first guests. And this is the very first time that I've actually repeated a guest. And I remember when we spoke, it was in the beginning of quarantining. And I did a lot of complaining. So brace yourself. Anyone that hasn't heard the first interview with Dr. Daryl Appleton, that's who I have. I'm going to make my introduction. She is a mental health specialist and specializes in consulting, coaching, and speaking. She was featured in many publications such as Forbes, Cosmo, Men's Health, Huffington Post. The list goes on. But what I the most important thing she did actually was rich in life. Exactly. (laughs) But this is why I love uh, Dr. Daryl Appleton. She has a very modern approach to helping people. It just seems modern. She knows how to reshape corporate and individual visions of people, of of how they want to be. Am I am I explaining it correctly? Totally. Totally. So, you know, I know you worked with a lot of Fortune 500 executives and, you know, professional athletes and thought leaders. I know all of that. But you talk about one thing that's very interesting to me. I know that you help fight mental fatigue, right? I mean, that's something you've spoken about. Is that correct? That's that's the term. And I want to know exactly what that is, because I think I have it. And I know you say I'm a hypochondriac because I am. And I know that I got you on to get free therapy because my anxiety is off the charts. I complain that I'm emotionally tired all the time. Yeah, no, it's a real thing. And burnout we're starting to see is a a real thing. Um, Being a parent, uh, especially of twins, which I'm sure we will die. That's right. Exactly. We have to talk about that also. I mean, you are also a new mom of twins. I forgot, which is in my intro. And I forgot to mention it because I'm so selfish and just (laughs) caught up up in myself and my own problems. Dr. Daryl Appleton is now a new mom of twins, a boy and a girl. And how old are they? Two girls. I'm sorry. How old are they? They are eight months. God, what a great age. I don't know how you're doing it all. And, you know, listen, you know, I'm not that active on Instagram, but I did go on Instagram to check everything out. And you are amazing. Your 60 second, um, you know, psychology clips of the day are amazing, which I'm going to get to later. How do you get to do all this and do it with the kids too? We'll get to, but for now, I want to know what is the real thing behind mental fatigue? Okay. So mental fatigue is basically if I were to be your physician and you were saying my knee hurts and I'm like, cool, what are you doing with your knee? And you're like, well, I'm running and I'm working out and I don't really rest it. And you know, when it aches, I yell at it and I tell it to go harder and I shame it. This is the same thing. Emotions are still muscles. Our brain is still a muscle and people don't understand the difference. We we've been conditioned to think we're weak or we're not being productive when we rest. And in reality, if you were an athlete or if you are an athlete, rest is a huge part of, of working out. We know that muscle mass doesn't build unless we have an active rest, unless there's time off. 
You also can't just do arm day. I'm from New Jersey. Like there's lots of guys and women, but mostly men walking around there who have just done their upper body. And then they have these like little like toothpick legs walking (laughs) around, um, you know, the boardwalk. So there's something to be said about working out different parts of your brain and different parts of rest. And to do that, we don't have the skills and nobody's teaching us. Um, but to do that, it's hard and it takes a little bit of effort, but it is the one thing that does combat mental fatigue. So that's just a fancy way of saying like, we're, we're really shitty at taking care of ourselves and we continue to do things even though it hurts. And then the cycle continues down this road where it's hard to even do the little things. Right. I mean, it's funny. Your analogy was funny because I talk about it also on the show that one of my biggest pet peeves is when these guys walk around with these huge arms and the huge chest (laughs) and I'm not impressed. You want to impress me? Lift your shirt up. It all is in the six pack in the stomach. You don't have to have a six pack, but it's nice to be close to it. Don't impress me with the huge arms and the big, big, big chest. So it's funny. That was the analogy they used. But yes, it's it's a thing. It's a thing. And and people use it, I guess for people, for women, or I'm being stereotypical and I apologize, but like for women, it's like makeup, like girl, like, no, go fix your face. Like do some, like, you know, what, why are you hiding behind that? Like bring out your natural beauty. Stop that. We, we hide behind these things sometimes to bring this facade out that we're okay. Look at my arms, not my six pack. Like we're okay. Look at my contour, you know, not my personality. But the same thing mentally, like we put on this facade, Instagrams, whatever these social worlds, the metaverse that we're kind of going into, and we're not okay. And it's okay to not be okay, but God forbid we ever show any of that. Right. You see, I talk about it too much that I have anxiety, things are bothering me. So I want to ask you, how are things with your clients slash patients? I mean, when we spoke, it was only the beginning of this. And now things are as polarizing now as they were before. So, you know, I'm in a business where it's suffering still as a result of COVID. I can't get the shoes that I, that I need. Factories are still shut down. My own collection is still on pause. And with all of that, I have people telling me that, you know, we have to get vaccines. The kids have to get vaccinated, you know, which is fine. But first of all, I don't like to be bullied. And I don't want my kids to have to have a vaccine, which of course we're going to do. There's, Mm -hmm. you know, we're in the process of doing it, but it just feels like it's giving me more anxiety. You are right on brand, right on trend with the rest of the people that I have seen. So I'm trendy with that too. You are so, you're just, you're trendy. I'm trendy. trendy Even in your anxiety, Rich, you're trendy. I don't want to, I don't want to be trendy anymore. I, I, the anxiety (laughs) doesn't stop because every time I I stop thinking about something, let's say, you know, that has to do with business. I wind up thinking then about the kid's school and then what we have to do. And the pressure doesn't stop. And if you voice any kind of opinion that is not in sync with everybody else, you can get, you know, destroyed. Sure. It's, it's interesting. I'm doing a um, lecture in a couple of weeks on like the psychology behind cancel culture and how it's really kind of pushing us further into mental illness and and mental health. Um, But also I think what you're saying about just the extra stuff on our plate, there's just one more thing to worry about. What I've seen with my clients, what I've seen with my, my corporate um, contracts is that people don't know what to do. And that's a huge source of anxiety. And when people are telling you what you should or shouldn't be doing, what it does is it takes away a sense of agency. So now I don't know what I should be doing, but you're now telling me what you think is best and I don't agree. And then you might cancel me or you might not be friends with me or we might not speak again. And that's just this added layer. 
I think people have been not able to be as human as we need to be in, I, I don't know, a global pandemic in times when we're all suffering. So it's been really hard and it's about teaching my clients. It's okay to, to, to not be okay. It's okay to have these feelings, but we need to do something about it. We need to give you that sense of agency. We need to give you some sense of control, even, even though it might not be super big, but like, even if it's just like, I'm going to go get my coffee from that really, you know, wonderful place down the street and I'm going to spend seven or $8 on it. And no one is going to shame me for it. I'm doing it. Sometimes little stuff like that is how we start to take control back. Um, and it can lead to bigger and better things. Cause once we feel a little bit better, we can start doing better. Okay. So now getting back to politics, which I know we've never discussed it. We've never discussed it personally. We've never discussed it on a podcast, but I do want to discuss it a little bit because it is something that's really stressing out so many people and everybody is so afraid to talk about it. So Mm -hmm. whether we agree on things or not is not even the point. The point is how do we go about our business and our daily life with our children and families in a healthy way when everyone around us is pushing something else? I mean, we all blame Donald Trump for four years, but now look, it's he's he's nowhere in the picture anymore. Now we're back to, you know, fighting about the vaccines, fighting about the masks. And you've got this, you know, Merritt Garland in there, the attorney general that wants to sick the FBI on anyone that opens up their mouth. I mean, it's really frightening to me. It's frightening to me. And if I didn't have these young kids that I had to worry about, I would say let the world blow up. Let everybody kill each other. I don't give a rat's ass. You know what I'm saying? But I have kids now. So now right. I've got to take care of the, my kids. I've got to take care of the environment. I've got to take care of the world. And it just feels overwhelming. How do you coach people? Or do you not tell people anything about politics? Do you tell them, keep quiet? What's the deal? So honestly, I think th- this political climate that we're in is polarizing because we're not allowing for anybody else to have an opinion. And what what's happening is when the stress comes in, if I'm saying you're right, that must mean I'm wrong. And with everything else happening, I can't afford to be wrong because then then what am I doing? What am I? It's so hard to change ourselves. It's triply hard to change somebody else. It's just not going to happen with brute force. So the way that we need to start to change is to have conversations that allow for differencing of opinions, that allow for people to come to the table with their experiences and what they have perceived. And instead of shaming them for having them, it's about saying like, okay, that's interesting. Tell me more. Or in my experience, this is what I've seen. So we need to have more dialogue and we need to respond instead of react. And that's kind of like the business that I am in in general emotional stimuli is there for a reason. There's nothing we can do when we feel anxious in that moment. It's cortisol flooding your body. Like you can't stop that from happening, but what you can do is you can change the narrative. You can change how you process it and you can change your behaviors because of it. So whether it's politics or pandemic or just everyday stress, I think the way that we speak to ourselves and the way that we speak to other people matters and it needs to be better because we are failing at it. Okay. Brad, what do you want to say? Hey, how are you? First of all, this man is a wizard. He ages backwards, by the way. No, I'm not even kidding. And I, I, listen, it's true. He like told me his age and I was like, you're lying. I don't want to talk to you anymore. Um, It's amazing. (laughs) He's ugly. He's terrible. Continue. (laughs) So 
I, one of my biggest questions or what I would understood you were to say is that we have to learn how to communicate differently and maybe ask questions or form our questions differently with people than what we used to, because we might be putting people on high alert without meaning to some sure. things that didn't seem hot topics or hot buttons or the way we address the question might now be. It's almost like being in a relationship where someone is not on your side or you're going through a therapy and you have to change the way you communicate. Is that kind of what I'm hearing from what you're saying to each other? Totally. I think people sometimes don't mean it or just assume that we're on the same page. And I'm sure, you know, you guys as parents have kind of been through it of like, Oh, you're really going to feed your kid that. And like, they might not mean it the way they're saying it, but they also might. Um, I know for me, the breastfeeding thing, like, no, I'm not breastfeeding twins. Sorry. Like I'm not doing it. I love the people that do. And like, that's cool. But like I physically could not, would not, will not. No, thank you. Um, they would be on me right now if that were the case. So right. <laughs> for me, it's allowing my experience to be valid and be validated, but also allowing for your experience to be real and valid and validated. And like, just because you did what you did with your kids doesn't mean like I'm doing something wrong with mine. So I think we're just like really selfish and egotistical to even think that because you do things one way means like the other person's doing it wrong. And like right. that judgment there is incredibly detrimental to, to society as a whole. Well, here's the problem that I'm having for me. You know, it's back to me. The pendulum has to come back to me because I have you on here and I'm getting a free session here. So here is the thing for me is that I really don't want to talk. I don't need communication. I believe what I believe. You can believe what you believe. I think everyone should be entitled to do what they want, live and let live. I just don't like to be bullied into mm -hmm. doing, doing anything. And I think for me, I don't need to have the conversation. I don't need to change anybody's mind about anything, but I don't want to be yelled at and I don't want to be scrutinized. And, you know, unfortunately I get baited a lot and I get baited a lot because a, I have the podcast and B we're a same sex couple. So everybody automatically assumes that Brad and I are exactly, you know, a certain way. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily true. So we get baited a lot and I usually am quiet about it. I don't always, you know, respond until it's the third or fourth time. And then I may say something, but people get so angry, Daryl, people just get so angry when it comes to politics. I don't know what we're all going to do about it. And I'm sure the people that you deal with, you know, you can't say, they can't say maybe what they really believe. It, it is true. It is true. And I think that again, like there's this lack of tolerance that we have to certain things. And from a psychological perspective, it's because of fear again, because like, if you're right, then I'm wrong. Or this fear of then what, you know, if everything I believed is, is a facade, then like I have to, my whole life is in shambles. Like, Oh my God, like this whole structure I've built around this one idea just collapses. And again, your children are older than mine, but I'm sure if you try to bully your children into eating something or wearing something or doing something, they'd tell you exactly what you could go do with yourself. So it's no different than adults. And, you know, since we're doing a free therapy session, it might also be stuff in your childhood. If you had stuff growing up where you felt pushed into being one way or another and not having a choice or a say, it could be more of a sore spot for you. And lots of people have that, but they don't realize that all this stuff is then hitting on past pain points. Right. I don't know. You're right about that. First of all, I will say that, you know, growing up, I did. I, I felt I had to be a certain way. So yeah, I don't like to be bullied. Don't tell me I, I live in America. I, you know, don't tell me what to do and don't bully me. 
You're right. But I don't think anyone likes to be bullied. You said on one of your 60 second psychology tips, you said something that was so amazing. I have a few of them that I want to go over, but one of my favorite ones that I always say I'm going to do, and of course I never do, I can't do it. I have a podcast, but I'm saying in real life, you said, say less and mean more. Mm. I want you to explain to people what that means. And I'm going to bring up an example that people are going to hate me for bringing up. Melania Trump was amazing. She said nothing. I found her silence to be louder than anything. For me, in my opinion, I found her silence to really say a lot to me and what I thought of her. And I always say, and I try to tell people and I advise, you know, I'd say, Brad, the less we say, the better. And explain to me how it works. Say less, mean more. So when I'm dealing with positions of power or people in, in those positions, I we really coach about how to command a room. And one of the best ways to command a room to generate power is through silence. Because statistically, and they've done studies, people with the least amount of power, not on a podcast, obviously, but in a room tend to say the most because they are trying to be noticed. People who have power don't need to be noticed. You notice them already. And regardless of how you feel about Melania or Trump or Biden or whoever, you notice them. You're talking about them. They're not talking about you. So there's power there. So they they can say less. So if you're trying to cultivate power or if you're trying to, again, gracefully exit a conversation, saying less absolutely starts to mean more. People talk and talk. And with social media and the world we live in, all we hear is talking and it becomes just noise at some point. So your silence can be strategic and making sure that that's something that you're using as a tool rather than a weapon with great power comes great responsibility. There's something to be said about strategic silence. Okay. It's very true because when you're not in that cat fight and you don't hear barking, you know, I noticed that in order for people to get attention, they had to speak out politically and everybody on social media and, you know, everywhere you looked on TV were these sound bites of, you know, these angry, angry activists. I just, you know, change the channel or turn it off and I don't get involved in social media, but you know, you're right. There is a lack of respect. The more you scream, Am I right? Yeah. It's so true. Another thing you said was stop giving relationship perks to people who aren't giving you a healthy relationship. I love that. I mean, whoever doesn't follow Dr. Daryl Appleton should follow her on Instagram because when I do go on, I find I just scroll and scroll and scroll and it has such meaning and they're short, which is what I love. So explain that. Stop giving relationship perks to people who aren't giving you a healthy relationship. There's a saying in my world where you can only be as healthy as the most unhealthy person in the relationship. And if that person's you, cool. Like we got, we got room. It's me. Yes. Okay. For me, it's me. Continue. (laughs) We got room. Poor Brad, on the other hand, can only meet you where you're at. So a lot of times I find with people who are in marriages, you know, my 20 somethings who are dating, um, even people, you know, at their, at their jobs or in, in friendships, they are giving all these perks. They're making all of these allowances for somebody who doesn't contribute as much to the relationship, thus giving them more power and control. And I hate to sound so, so like cut and dry about it, but psychology really comes down to power and control. It comes down to power and control over yourself, you know, the relationship, again, what you decide to do with that matters because you can go to really dark manipulative places, but healthy relationships are about a balance of this. 
lots of people don't give, but they continue to receive. And this is this people pleasing that some, sometimes people start to do. And they come to me to, to your point earlier with this mental fatigue and exhaustion because there's no return on that investment. They're just giving and giving and giving and their cup is en- empty. And this other person is making out fantastically. See, it's funny because I find that I know that I am the unhealthy one in the relationship, but one of my biggest issues with Brad is that he (laughs) gives and he gives and he's a good guy. He just, he gives and, you know, he doesn't expect much back. I mean, even in business, you know, if he has a contract with someone to do a job, he goes way and beyond and he can, you know, be making triple the money on that same job, but he just goes way too far. And that irritates me. (laughs) Why does it irritate you? Because it's time away from me. It's time. Well, he doesn't do it anymore with the family, but it used to be time away from me. And it just felt he would become obsessed with this, his, this one project. You're getting paid to do something. Stick to the thing you're getting paid to. Mm. Is, I, and, and I used to think, is it a people pleasing thing? Does he just want to please them? And then, you know, sometimes if they would, you know, maybe even owe money, you know, it would be hard for him to collect it because he's not the type. Right. Is that what you mean? But that is kind of what you mean when you say stop giving relationship perks. Yeah. And you know, for, there's lots of people like Brad out there. I married, I married one. Jimmy's very similar to Brad in that way where they're good people. And psychologically, if we're really to break it down, I would say there's something about the experience of helping someone else that feels validating to them. And that's something that might need to be explored. Why is your reality based in somebody else's happiness? Like, where does that come from? Is it parenting? Is it, you know, something that's happened growing up? And I hate to be so Freudian about it, but guess what? It's true. Um, there's, I know. There's, I know you're a big. Um, I know you love Freud. I do. Me too. I love Freud too because I think a lot of the issues I have come stem from my childhood. She's helping. Listen. Continue. Yes. <laughs> no. I just wanted to let the. I just wanted to let the I people. Know the no. I just want to. I just want to let the people listening know that we are a Dar- Dr. Daryl Appleton, who is so modern in her way of helping people, is a huge fan of Freud, and and so am I. I believe in it. I am. And I think everything needs to be taken with a grain of salt. Like he's not just about penises. You need to look into some of his other work. Right. There's more to it than that. Right. But, you know, again, back to the people pleasing there, there is this return on investment, but sometimes again, it goes a little bit too far where you find yourself giving and giving and not having enough gas in the tank to give back to your relationships, your kids, the stuff at home. And a lot of people that I work with, they usually start, they come to me because something feels off. They're not at their highest performance level, like something's going on. And I usually see this imbalance between work and home. So it does absolutely impact one life or the other. And we need to kind of swing this pendulum back and forth and be there for work and other people, but also return back to home and center in a different way um, while also getting ourselves refilled so we can do really great things, especially if we're wonderful like Brad and not selfish like Daryl and Rich. (laughs) Me. You're not selfish. You're actually very giving. And I know that. Thank you. Do you work mostly for corporate? Is it more of a corporate mental health or do you do it on both ends? Do you wind up helping companies that, you know, for people that want to further their goal in the company and then wind up trickling into their, you know, relationship with their spouse, their children? Is that how that works? So right now, and I Frankenstein a career together all the time because I can't just do one thing. I'm too, I just can't, I get bored really quickly. So I have a caseload of individual people that I carry about only 30 at a time. Cause I want to make sure that I have enough time devoted to researching things for them and, you know, sending them emails. And I have a Google drive for each of my clients that I add to. 
But at the same time, I also love speaking in front of people. I like looking at the bigger organizations. So a lot of times those relationships will cross over where I'll have somebody in the financial sector and they're like, you got you to come in and speak to our board or you got to come in and speak to our, our rising stars um, in the leadership world. So it, that is kind of nice. But things like um, right now, I'm kind of in-house at Brown University for their general surgery department. And I'm kind of on call for coaching and they have my link and they sign up. But I also do strategic lectures throughout the year for their residents and their attendings. And I love that because I think that it, it allows me to work with different parts of my brain. And I do, I truly... This sounds corny, but I truly think that it does help. And I hope it helps because my kids, I want them to grow up with healthier people around them. So like, I think it's important for my legacy to be, you know, I want this for a better world for my kids. Like we can't have you guys all sorts of fucked up. Like that's, there's, there's something not okay with that. So let's, let's bring it back and let's try to get you guys one or two skills that you can take with you and be a better physician, you know, whatever it is that you're trying to do, business person, entertainment, uh, finance, I see, I see it all. There, th- that is a great way of looking at it. I've never looked at it in that way. You know, I always say being a doctor, being a surgeon, being a psychologist is great. But the fact that you worded it that way, that I want to help as many people as I can to make the world better for my children. That's really, that's great. You also say there is reaction versus responding. Mm. I find I'm reactionary which I'm everything negative. Just assume when we talk that I am the negative of everything. So now tell me about reaction versus responding. I refuse to and, believe that narrative about you, Rich. Okay. I will not. <laughs> okay, but when we, when we talk, we're not only talking about your clients, but I'm assuming you have clients and patients. Is that correct? So I have a mental health private practice and I have a staff of about like 10 right now um, that see clinical mental health, the gamut of bipolar, schizophrenia, all of, you know, your diagnosable stuff. I'm more on the coaching end. Um, I like calling people clients because you're not being billed by your insurance. Um, But I do see both. And I I definitely was more integrated um, on the patient side, especially early on in my career. I was working with addictions in a mental um, institution, basically. Um, So that was fun. Lots of stories there. Uh, yeah. So I actually, while we're on the topic, so tell me, what are you working on mostly now during this last, I, I haven't spoken to you in a year and a half. The, I'm sure there's been a lot of addictions. Is that, has that been one of the things you've been you know, dealing with, with a lot of your clients? I, I think it's more burnout on this end. You know, I've find, found people who are starting to really ask themselves, what's the point? What, what's the point? I'm here. I'm cut off from my social stuff that used to give me life. I'm with my family. Do I really like my spouse? You know, I'm starting to resent my children or I I go to work and I don't, I'm not fulfilled. Like I used to be distracted by my commute, but now like I go upstairs and I do it. And I found, I hate my job. The money's not worth it. This golden handcuff thing starts to come out. So I think I've, I've dealt a lot more with people who are questioning their current reality and trying to seek out a better future. Because people have not necessarily all gone back to work. Is that what the problem is? Because we're out of the quarantine. People can go out and and Mm -hmm. go for dinner and do things. So they're not stuck at home. But because everyone now is working from home, that's become like the new norm. I think she's also saying, sorry, Daryl, what I heard is that people, some of the assets that used to be from commuting or being in an office with a lot of people is not there any longer. So what their job used to be is not the, the, the perk isn't, isn't there. So that's why they're reassessing it. There, people are really seeing like, what am I doing? 
I'm, I'm, I could be making six, seven, eight figures, but there's a difference between rich and wealthy. Rich is I have money. Wealthy is I have time. And people are starting to see how they were spending their time or how they were spending their money isn't necessarily what they want to be doing anymore. So I think the distractions and people are sheep in, in a lot of ways. And it takes a lot uh, to pull yourself out of that and to assess and to make a, a strategic decision. So I think people are just going along with their commutes and getting these perks back from the social relationships or the the cocktail dinners or the this and the that, that kind of blinded them to what am I actually doing? And the quarantine stripped all that down. And it was like, do I like the area I'm living in? Do I like the school system my kid is in? Because now we have more options. And I think that also led to people really questioning what it is they want out of the rest of their life. You, you said something in another um, 60 second <laughs> psychology tip. No, because it has to do with what she's actually saying is writing down the goals, even if you haven't achieved them. You know, I love that you said wealthy versus rich. I mean, I never thought of it that way. So yeah, I can say that I'm, I'm wealthy because I have my family that I love. Everybody is healthy, you know? So, I mean, is that a good, is that a good phrase? It's, it sounds like almost a great catchphrase to make people feel better. I mean, I hope so. Unless they have sick people in their family, then they're totally fucked. <laughs> yeah, we can do a suburb, a, a subdivision. We're going to be wealthy in life and rich in life. <laughs> I love that. Yes. I mean, it, it's, I think there's something about phrases that help people develop mantras. And I, I, my brain is just very good at boiling down things into a simplistic way. That's why people hire me because I can take a whole bunch of shit and boil it down to like, you. it sounds like you feel this way, or it sounds like this might be helpful. So when people have a mantra, something like, am I being, is this rich or is this wealthy? And what do I want to be doing? They can make better decisions because now they have something to compare it against. And I think that's really important for our life because if, if we're just unintentionally living or even growing growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of a cancer cell. We need to grow purposefully. We need to grow intentionally. And part of that is questioning what we want and how we want it. So then how would writing down goals you haven't achieved really help that? So the brain doesn't know the difference between something that has actually happened or a story. That's why feelings are really dangerous because we create these stories in our head. And research actually shows that if you write down statements, like you've already achieved them, when you go for that interview, you're going to have more confidence and more testosterone. Literally your brain chemistry changes to, to nail that interview because your brain thinks it's already done it. It's already been there. So this is why visualization actually has huge benefits. Um, whether it's recovering from a medical illness, they did studies where, um, people who had ACL surgeries, one subset of patients had to visualize running again and the others didn't. The people who visualized recovered way quicker, their body literally healed faster down to people again, who are visualizing going through a speech in their head before they get up on stage, their cortisol levels, their stress levels were lower, their testosterone was higher, which is equated to confidence. So writing down your goals as if you've already achieved them is like kind of a, a tricky way of working smarter and not harder. See, I don't know if that would work for me because I, don't like being optimistic, not to be funny. I don't like to be optimistic because I don't like being disappointed. So I always shoot low and I'm always like, it's never going to happen. I'm never going to get this, or this is never going to work out. And it, I know it's a terrible thing, but it helps me. It helps me to digest the disappointment better. Well, it's part of your anxiety, probably, you know, when you have a hold on, I know what to do. You're probably very good in a crisis in a lot of ways. It's like, okay, 
I know what to do here. He's excellent in a crisis. He went down to 9-11 to help out. He's excellent in a crisis. He runs at it. It's funny that you said that. You see, that's why you're a good doctor. You nailed it. Brad says, you know, something terrible happened. I mean, not that terrible, but bad. And I said, Brad, why am I so calm? Anything could set me off. He says, because you're great in a crisis. Mm-hmm. See, I thank you for validating me. I'm so happy that yeah, I, yeah, I nailed that you one. You are intuitive. You know your shit. Anyway, I'm sorry. So continue. No, but that's part of it. You've practiced a crisis every day for the last however many days of your life. So you've taken the worst. When he was 10. Yeah. So, so, Brad, so Brad wants to give you, mode. Brad wants to give you my little rundown and people <laughs> want to complain to me. I'm like, yeah, oh, really? I'm sorry to hear that. You know, my father died when he was 10. I dealt with this. Our house burnt down. My mother had that. I had to crawl my way to, you know, humanity alone without guidance, you know, when I was young, growing up in Brooklyn. And, you know, that's usually my shtick, but I had a very charmed and lovely upbringing. It really was great. At the time, I don't know how great I thought it was, Hmm. but looking back, it was wonderful. How can we reframe the pessimism into something like what you're talking about to manifest the next phase of life in a positive way without making him fear that the positivity will fall short. Okay. Cause Brad's biggest issue with me is why am I always so negative? It's your success delusion. What got me here is, is the way I've been doing things. So if I continue to do things, I will continue to be successful. So it makes sense why you do what you do because you've gotten what you have, which is actually to, to use your words, not that bad. It's, it's charmed. It's good. People are healthy. We're happy. So holding on to the process is part of what you know, makes you successful. And and that that's a delusion. Um, it doesn't mean it's not true. It just means like, that's your security blanket. And some people do it, you know, like, Oh, if I do Coke before my big meeting, like I usually nail it. <laughs> like right. that's also a delusion. It's not, if necessary. I do crack, right. That's a good one. If I do crack before my meeting, that's funny. Um, just a quick, hit a meth and I'm good. I'm good to go. That it's, but we hold, we all have them. We all hold on to these things and they become ritualistic. Right. I was going to say they become habitual and mm-hmm. sometimes it's not, it's not a good thing. And how do you break the habit? You said another great thing that I loved. I cannot work harder on your life than you do. Mm-hmm. And I think about that all the time because I want to go to my therapist and I want to drop everything there, like in a bag and be like, okay, sayonara. <laughs> and I just want to leave and be like, figure it out. So it's funny you said that and you almost it's almost as if you totally understand what people, clients or patients are trying to do. We're trying to scam the system. We Mm want to pay the money, drop off our baggage and then you figure it out. Exactly. Yeah. I can't do it for you. you I want you to. I know. And sometimes I wish I could. It would be so much easier here. Go, go, go. But realistically, (laughs) the work when you do it, it's like working out. You can't send me to the gym and work out for you again. Like I'd be all arms. I'm not doing a leg day, but that's, you know, that's part of this. It's the cognitive, the cognitive place of creating more neuro pathways by continuously working out that part of your brain. That's the process of building new, new neural pathways, new muscle in your brain. The same exact thing is working out. So sometimes when hard things come, we just need to like lift our chin, hold our heads up high and call it exercise. So when people wake up physically, not physically, mentally exhausted, or how, what's your phrase you say mentally, uh, challenge, what was, however you worded it, mentally exhausted. When you wake up mentally exhausted and you just feel like it's just another day, how do you get past it in order to be productive? 
You create a new narrative. And this is where lot, there's lots of research. Um, Angela Duxworth and Carol Dweck uh, talk a lot about grit and growth mindset. And it's very trendy and blah, 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 but it actually works. So this growth mindset is I can handle hard things. And a fixed mindset is here we go again. Like I just have to get through the day. So this is basically if we're kind of going through the research, so this comes from a, a narrative that we had about ourselves or that our parents gave to us when we succeeded or when we failed. Parents who usually tell their kids, hey, listen, your process was really good, even though you didn't win the game, even though you know this didn't turn out the way that you wanted it to, you, you did a really good job here, here, and here. This could use some work. Those kids tend to be more resilient than kids who have you either failed or you succeeded or, you know, either got an A or you're a complete degenerate or whatever it is because they or everybody won. Everybody gets a trophy. Everybody's right. perfect. You don't it's, agree no, with that either. I don't. I do not agree with it. I think that psychologically it's damaging and we need to be seen as individuals, but we can't be the most important thing. We need to be a part of a group, but at the same time, like the group can't always win just because they showed up. Like that's not, that's wonderful, but like, that's not above and beyond the call of duty. That is the call of duty when you sign up for something is to show up. Well, but it's not the reality. I mean, that's not the reality of life. People go in for jobs. Some people get them. Some people don't. So how is you? It's Darwinism. Yeah. Darwinism. Is that what it's called? Yeah. It's survival of the fittest in a way we, we need to continue to hone better skills so that bad ones die out. If we celebrate everything, if we celebrate mediocrity, it becomes dangerous. And I'm not saying like, don't encourage your children. I'm not, cause there's going to be people out there who do that thing. Um, I'm not saying any of that, What I am saying that it is important to, to create an environment where success is rewarded in a way that makes sense. And also like facilitating growth in a way that allows for healthy competition and healthy losing. Oh, that's a whole nother podcast, which goes back to politics, which goes back to everything else, which I'm not going to get into now because it's too aggravating. But getting back to having these children, I mean, first of all, did you have an easy pregnancy with the twins? No, God, no. You did not. No. I hated you being beautiful pregnant. the whole time. Oh, you Brad. You did. You did. <laughs> you of a human being. Thank you. Um, yes, I was very lucky where A, people only saw me from here up. So I looked <laughs> normal. And then I like popped out these children and I was just like, oh, super easy. So yes. the quarantine really helped keep the magic alive for my viewers. <laughs> um, yeah. The reality was I was having sessions and I was pausing them to go throw up. I threw up every day, multiple times a day. I, you know, it was just not... I was not happy and glowing. I didn't even into the later months. I thought the throwing up is in the first, you know, I threw up weeks. the entire time. Wow. Yeah. That, um, that's probably why you bounced back after they were born. Probably. <laughs> probably. No, no it, it makes sense. Think about it. If you've been throwing up the entire time, that's why after you gave birth, you look terrific. You really yeah. bounced back. Yeah. So, okay. So now you have these two little girls and we're living in this crazy world. Now, thank God you don't have to deal with a lot of it. You're dealing with mommy and me groups. Were they delivered early or they were at seven, uh, no, 20 set, no, 37 weeks and four days. Right. Yeah. 37 weeks. So no, we had, I had a scheduled seed section. It was the best thing ever for somebody type A like me. I had my, my beautiful coat on. I walked in looking fabulous. (laughs) I had my, my appointment, the girls came. It was wonderful. The recovery from my C-section was what I recommend it versus having twins. Um, for me, it was just a dream to, to get them out and to have 
have them here, but also not to have them like fighting on the inside and like kicking whatever organ was nearest to them. So yeah, it was, it was nice. That was great. That was a great part of it of getting, get out. And that's, that was what it was. And yeah, our surrogate said the same thing. You know, she had a C-section and it was the same thing. She said it was, she wound up coming to the kids bris seven days later from Milwaukee to, you know, New York city. Oh, I, I love mean, that. yeah. So it was amazing that she was able to really, I mean, she needed help, you know, but she really said, you know, she was great. She was great. Women are amazing. The fact that women can carry these twins and, and, and still work and get dressed up and wear high heels. I mean, even if you don't wear high heels, but wear them anyway, it builds character. As long as I don't have to be uncomfortable, <laughs> wear them, carry the twins, look great. But you also never stop working. It's true. You'd never stop working. It's, um, it, it's, it's a real, I think being a mom has, I feel like such a fraud pre kids. Cause I'm like, Oh, just take time for yourself. Like having kids changed obviously my entire world, but my, my view on the world. And I have always valued hard work from, from a work standpoint an occupational standpoint. I mean, I did sessions the day of my C-section. I was back in the office doing phone calls two weeks later for my sanity. It was healthy for me. And that was important for me to have. And that time away from my kids to have adult conversations and not talk about the color of poop um, right. all day, every day. But, you know, I think that we don't necessarily always see the emotional labor of, ha of, of having kids. And to your point, Rich, of like, constantly. Okay. Is this okay? What about this? Do I have their school stuff ready? Is this going on? Is this, it just is like tabs running open in the background, always kind of going, going. So it definitely is a drain on your energy more so than, than before when you didn't have all these other things to worry about. How hands-on is Jimmy? He is super hands-on. And I mean, you know, he's a surgeon, so his schedule is kind of wild. He also was obsessed with my scar. He was like, this is perfect. Look at these, this incision line. Like it was Wait, like, can we back up a second? How did I not know that Jimmy was a surgeon? Oh yeah. He's a foot and ankle surgeon. A foot and ankle surgeon. Mm -hmm. That is very good to know. So you yeah. can trip, but you can't fall on your hands. <laughs> right. your hands I broke my wrist. That's why. Go feet first down, down wow. the stairs. So that's interesting. I had no idea. Okay. So that's great. And he's still hands-on. I mean, that's a busy profession. That really is. I yeah. mean, so is yours, but. Yeah, no, it's different though. His you is... can't zoom that in. Right. Right. He, um, he's, he's very maternal in his own ways, which is really kind of cool. Um, so we do balance each other out a lot. There's still very frustrating things. I mean, it, it's hard to, I like things the way I like them and like, he'll do things. And it's very hard for me not to be like, mm -mm. like, I literally have to sometimes like fan myself in the back as he's changing a diaper. I'm like, Oh God, I just need to redo it when he's not looking. Um, but I'm getting better, but he's, Great. yeah, he's actually, I'm very lucky. He's very good. So now you're very lucky that you're on rich in life because now I'm going to help you. <laughs> I'm going to help you. Please. Nobody is more specific than me. I am the most controlling person. I think that I know when we had our nurse, she came in with all her uniforms. I wouldn't let her wear them. You know, these Island blue and pink crazy things. I bought her white for the day and black. If we ever took at the kids out and we needed her, she had two uniforms. I'm extremely controlling. Our kids were dressed a certain way and the stroller, everything was a certain way. I'm telling you from now, give it up girl, because let me tell you something, <laughs> uh, you got to give it up because they're going to wear you down and it's mm. better to give it up before they wear you down completely. Just, you got to start succumbing to it. My kids are now wearing jeans 
and they were in color. Granted, it's, you know, it's my version of it. It's still right. better than, but still, I never thought I wanted them to get dressed every day. You know, you know, my daughter didn't like to wear a collar, still won't wear a collar. I'm like, then you're wearing a t-shirt, but I figure out ways to, you know, make right. it look modern or cute or feminine. So yeah, I would probably just look the other way. That's what I do. I just look the other way. That is my advice. And your children are impeccably dressed. I'm waiting for that shipment of at least, you Not know, an, I, I, I know that. <laughs> I, I yes, I, we should start sending her some of yes. some of the girl stuff. If it's your style. Um, yes. Get it up here. I would, I would love to be the girls. One is a puker. She pukes over everything. So I have like these gross bibs on her and then I take a picture and I like rip the bib off and like put it on there. So it's, um, it's definitely a, a thing. So here's the thing that uh, Brad and I did more me than him. Cause he used to get nervous when we would go out and they would stain the nice clothing. I didn't care. Do you know? I really didn't care. They have to wear it. They're going to, if, if it's, if we can't get it out, we can't get it out. And right. that's just the way it is. So I never got nervous. And I still don't get angry if they're wearing something new and they're always in white, I get annoyed quietly. I say, okay, well, we'll take it out when we get home. But that is, I, I'm not like, let's wear horrible clothes, you know, because you're going to eat pasta when we go out. Right. Right. Now I have a question for you. What has been the most frustrating encounter that you guys have had being parents of twins um, and maybe dealing with singleton parents or, you know, the differences you've seen maybe in your friends with one or multiples of different ages versus being twin parents? Oh my God. You just opened up a can of worms for me. Okay. Where do I begin? First of all, Daryl, I'm going to tell you, and I wanted to ask you the same question, the lack of sleep for me. I find here's the thing. The kids started coming into the bed at one years old. They were climbing out of the crib and I'll never forget the very first time they did it. I heard a lot of pitter patter feet and they stopped at the bedroom door. I got out of my bed a little to look to see, and I see those two little faces and I called them in and that was it. From the end, they come into our bed every night. But here is the trick. When you get used to not sleeping, which <laughs> I got used to it, you get used to it. It's you, you can live with it. It's fine now. But I, there were months that I was a monster, a monster. I kept telling Brad, I have to go to a doctor. I have to go to a, spe a sleep specialist. You know, for me, everything is a specialist. You know what I'm saying? It's like, my, I want my daughter to have a conditioning treatment in her hair. Who does it the best? I'm like, right, it's conditioner. Right. It's like, I need a special <laughs> place to go. I'm all about going to a specialist. I wound up never doing that, but I did complain nonstop. I couldn't, then I got over it. I got past the hump of not sleeping. Two hours, I get up, you know, cause they come in, they hit you, they this. And so there's no, no more than two hours. So the sleeping, very difficult. Mm. You're still on formula, right? Yes. Okay. So enjoy it because once yeah. they start eating food and they get introduced to everything, the feeding them beyond annoying, they don't want to eat anything healthy. You get aggravated. Don't. Just don't give them as many healthy things as you can. Right. And then leave the rest up to the universe when they're 16 or 17 or 18 and they want to be fit like their friends, they'll, they'll get into it. Brad, what do you want to say? I was going to say, we, I don't think we introduced vegetables and reintroduced foods that they didn't like fast enough. Mm. We gave up because I didn't want to make a lot of food and constantly throw it away. Right. But I see from other parents who are doing that, that their children eat more vegetables or if I found so. So what it's like 10, 15 times you have to introduce something. Oh, 
they say to keep introducing it and putting it on the plate. Like we keep putting salmon on the plate. We keep putting stuff on the plate and they're still throwing it out. And as you know, as they're throwing it out, I'm just saying, keep, keep wasting my money. Keep doing they it. They don't want to be bullied into eating what they don't want to eat. I know, but I, but you know what? Do as I say, I'm the only one that is allowed to bully. Just do as I say. Right. Okay. So the eating thing for me is exhausting. I don't even get involved. I let Brad handle it, buzz off. Right. Just the other thing, which is interesting that I did want to talk to her about with, we just went away. We were in Miami for Thanksgiving. Very nice. We went to the same hotel that we always go to. The kids have been there maybe four times already. So they know the hotel, like the back of their hand. It frustrates me to no end that they won't allow themselves and they're together. They have each other. They won't allow themselves to be alone for one minute. Now, mind you, Brad and I never took our eyes off of them since Mm -hmm. they're born. And we had help. We had his mom. We had a nurse for four and a half years. And we always know we watch them wherever they go. But this is a very safe environment. They know it. Their friends are around. They had friends there that some of them were a year younger. Their parents were on the beach and their child was swimming in the pool with us. And yet my kids won't let me go to the bathroom. They won't let me go to the bathroom. Because the parents knew we were going to take a It doesn't matter. No, that's my, listen, no, nothing to do. Because my kids won't even allow another parent to watch them. They want to be with me or Brad. Why is that? And why does it bother me? I keep telling Brad, what's wrong with them? We're doing something wrong. They're never, how could they be afraid to sit on a lounge with their friend, eat their French fries and let me run, what is it, 50 feet to the bathroom? So my daughter says, I'll come with you. I said, I, so I said, no, it's okay. I'll hold it in. Maybe they're protecting you guys. Maybe they're like, they need us. They can't be left alone. Maybe it's, maybe it's the other way around. They're like, no, it no. sounds I've good, Daryl. I don't believe you. It sounds <laughs> wonderful. That's a good spin, but I'm not that dumb. It's a great spin on it. I wish that were the truth. It's not. Are we raising lemons? Tell me, are we raising no, two kids? No. That, what's the problem? They're it's seven the and a half. It's developmentally appropriate. They're still feeling out, you know, as their brains develop, the sense of danger is something that grows and it's, it's different and it's new every single step of the way. So they're starting to see, you know, like there are bad people or, you know, like people, the the feelings of like uncomfortable or something that, you know, we, we, they need to navigate. So, you know, there might be strategic ways of, you know, school is obviously, and I don't know if they're back in school. Yes, they are. They're back in school. They're okay. They go to school. But do you know that if I'm five minutes late picking her up on days that we pick them up, when we go to the country, there are certain days we'll go pick them up. If I'm five minutes late, my daughter is crying, crying because she doesn't know where I am. The the teacher couldn't find us. They walk them out and the Mm -hmm. teacher couldn't find the car. I go, Mm -hmm. Grayson, why are you crying? So it scares me that our... I'll tell you what it is. It makes me feel like maybe they don't feel secure. That would hurt my feelings if they don't feel secure. Well, we do know that there is some elements of anxiety that is hereditary. So having an anxious parent, you are more likely to have anxious children just biologically, but also from what they're observing. So, you know, the things you can do are then you're probably already doing them, managing your anxiety around them, showing them that there's allowed to be flexibility and schedules and things don't need to be so rigid. Um, And also having like a planned, a a planned day between you and Brad, that's, that's flexible on purpose without telling them and navigating them through step-by-step of everything's okay. We're okay. We're okay. And it's just reinforcing the narrative of like, 
things can happen. You know how to cope. I trust your ability to cope and giving them these positive reinforcements that they can then hold on to for when they're scared, they can say back to themselves. Okay. I mean, it sounds great. I'm going to try it. They don't really see my anxiety. They don't see it. You know, so it's not, a, it could be a hereditary thing, but they don't really see it. I am kind of easygoing with them. Mm-hmm. And I try to teach them, you know, be patient, even though I have no patience at all. I, my daughter is me. She has no patience. You know, where's the waiter? Where's my water? Where's my seltzer? Where's the fries? I go, honey, be patient. And I know what it's like because I am her. And she's right. in for a life of misery. <laughs> she's going to be in for a life of misery when you're not patient. And I'm trying very hard to be patient. And I know that's, and I am, I become patient. Since my mom developed Alzheimer's and declined slowly, I've learned to have a lot more patience. But Dr. Daryl, the amount of trouble that I've gotten into my entire life driving was all (laughs) as a result of no patience. Running through red lights, passing red lights, driving on the shoulder, going on the grass. I mean, like a cowboy. I used to drive on highways like a crazy person because I can't wait. I feel like I'm wasting my life. I've learned to calm down, but I see that same, I see that same kind of lack of patience with her. And, um, yeah, it's definitely, and I don't, she doesn't see it in me because I'm always telling her, no, honey, we have to wait. We have to wait, but the not allowing themselves to be alone does drive me crazy. It, It makes me think one of two things that we coddled them too much being with them and we letting them be in our bed, or they don't feel secure enough that we're going to run away. Have you asked them? I did. I did. I've asked them. I've asked. Uh, my son makes um, makes up excuses always. He'll never tell the truth. He's always a tough guy. No, no, it's not me. It's just Grayson. You know, he always says it's Grayson. And then if I see, but it looks like you were crying. He's like, no, no, I had water in my eyes. I'm like, yeah, that's what crying is. So he's a tough guy. He'll never tell me the truth. Grayson just says she got, she gets scared. I go, but I'll, and I tried to get out of her. What is it that's making you scared? She never really verbalizes it. So I asked her, are you afraid that I'm not going to come back or you're not going to see me? And she'll tell me, yes. I said, but honey, when did I ever, ever leave you? Never. Did COVID, has COVID maybe made um, them regress because they haven't had to be alone or had to be away? And they spent you know, almost a whole year in different rooms of the same house while they were learning and doing everything like Yeah. It it will be really interesting to see the trajectory of this generation of children and what happens to them as a whole, because I think there are common themes. And Brad, I think you hit the nail on the head there of, you know, a global pandemic and scary news and seeing this ticker of how many people are dying. Like, that's a scary thing that kids don't have the cognitive capacity to interpret and to, to process. So all they just all they know is bad things can happen. And at seven, that's a really hard narrative to navigate because in a second, you could not see your friends anymore. In a second, people could go away. And, you know, to Grayson's credit, like she has seen people go away, maybe not through death, but socially. And for a seven-year-old, that's kind of the same. Okay. Okay. Tell me about your girls. Do you see, I know, do you see um, personality differences? Whatever you're differences? comfortable with sharing online. Oh, thank or... you, Brett. I'm, I am comfortable. They, I mean, they, they don't have real, real full lives right now. So there's, no, there's nothing. But you have else. to see, I mean, we saw at such a young age, different personalities. Are totally. you seeing the same thing? 
Totally, totally, totally. This whole nature versus nurture thing is, is a wild thing to watch happen, especially with twins. And it's cool to, to be able to see it. So I had two, two girls, Stevie and Blake, and they had to have boys names because having a mom named Daryl, I couldn't have a fluffy, fluffy names for them. So can you remind the audience in case they haven't seen your first interview podcast, why your mom named you Daryl? Oh, my mother named me Daryl because she knew that men had more opportunities in a business world. So she knew that seeing a name like Daryl on a resume would land differently. And it's kind of cool. And I still love it when I walk into a room and people are just expecting this big burly man named Daryl to walk in and I come in uh-huh. with my Jimmy uh-huh. shoes and my, you know, <laughs> there you go. and I'm like, Hey, yeah. hi guys. Um, but yeah, she was very strategic and intentional. That Barbara, that Barb, she, she knows was what smart. Your doing. mom. So your girls. So my girls, two boys named Stevie and Blake. Um, <laughs> and I, it's so funny, the feedback I get from that. They're like, why would you do that? I'm like, my name is Daryl. Also like, they're not your kids. Like, fuck off. Yeah, um, fuck off, exactly. But also, they, one is one looks exactly like my husband. Blake looks like Jimmy. She She's Jimmy. She's got a Jimmy face. And Stevie looks kind of like my mom's side of the family and me a little bit more. But it's interesting because they do change. And I'm sure you've seen this with your kids, like from month to month, like their personalities change a little bit. And one thing you thought they were doing now, all of a sudden it's something different, but they are, they are different. Um, So here's another good tip I'm going to give you. First of all, your girls are so blondie. I, you know, because you're dark, your husband is dark and your girls look like they're California, California girls. (laughs) But here's another thing that actually my nephew taught me because he had kids before me, my nephew, Freddie. He said, Rich, don't stress. Anything they do is only going to last five minutes. Every phase he goes, so what? She doesn't like this. So she doesn't want to eat that. The minute her, she sees her friend, she'll do it. And you know what? It really helped. So now she'll, one, one little phase will aggravate me. And I realize, you know what? It's going to pass. It was the hair, no ponytail, no ponytail. And then I finally got no high ponytail. She would scream. So I mastered the low ponytail. And then when I, I finally mastered the low ponytail, it was like, no low ponytail, a high ponytail. Went back to the high ponytail. So he's right. Any yeah. phase that drives you crazy, it's not long lived. That's nice. I do like they they are in this phase of clapping. So when I come in in the morning, I get like a standing ovation and that's really great. I was working out the other day and they were in their walkers and they come like walking over to me and they're both clapping as I'm doing my plank. I'm like, this, like, this is great. I mean, come on girls, keep it up. Um, but it, it is amazing how quickly it goes. I think the thing I think the thing that's bo- what grinds my gears, the thing that bothers me the most is my, my friends who are like, oh, I have two and they're like 18 months apart. It's basically like having twins. I'm going to be like, no, bitch, it is not. It is not. Please don't even suggest it. I've had people say like, it's easy. They can entertain themselves. It's much easier to have twins. I'm like, no, no, absolutely not. You are changing 30 diapers a day. You are literally trying to pick up two human beings at the same time. And one's crying. If one isn't sleeping and the other one's not, you have a baby all day. So I think having twins, I think all, all parents are really special. I really now have a special place in my heart for moms of multiples and dads of multiples and parents of multiples, because this shit is, it's some days you're just like, holy hell. Somebody actually once told us that having twins is really, it's like having three. 
they go through everything. What people don't realize is they go through everything at the same time. So mm -hmm. when they're in the question phase, they're firing bullets at you. It's like, you know, and, and of course, like, you know, had she die, where'd she die? Where's and then, you know, the show two of them, the scar. show me the that? scar. It's like the it's all the things that trigger my anxiety. I'm getting them from both ends at the same exact time. And it's like, you might as well just take out a rifle and start shooting bullets at me. <laughs> right. It's stream of consciousness. One highlights the other one. The other one brings something else to fruition. And then the other one goes, oh, that sparks something for me to ask and then asks it again. So, yeah, I think going through the exact things at the same time, the mischievousness, not going to sleep. I feel like it, they're in sync. It's that age thing where everything right. is the same time. Like you need a little bit of reprieve. I always say, Brad, we get no reprieve. Right. I also think that we don't have the advantage of having had a kid before to know what not to pay attention to. Right. So if a, when they say the fourth, by the fourth kid, you just let them walk in water or with it, with holding a, you know, a toaster that's plugged in, you know, we don't have that. Right. Where do you stand on letting them come in the bed and sleep with you? For me, I think it's a no. I think, you know, I believe in, you know, these, the, the physical boundaries that kids need to learn about. So for, for us, I've, and again, this is an eight, a, a mother of an eight month old of two, eight month old. So like, I'm sure that day will come when they're like, hi, and I'm going to like, just get in. I'm exhausted. Um, but you know, I think that it's nice for them. By the to way, like it doesn't work that way. They don't <laughs> knock and they don't ask you. They walk into your room and they climb in on top of you and knock you in the face. So you That's would have to get up and put them back and then they're <laughs> going to come back again. Then you have to go put them back again if you want to do it the right way. That's got to be terrifying in a dead sleep. Just to have like this like creature, just like all of a sudden being like, dad. And you're just like, oh. Like, so my son, out. my son is sweet and is in love with Brad. So he always goes to Brad's side of the bed and crawls and snuggles next to him. My daughter always comes to my side, but you know, Princess Leia there doesn't like to climb. She hits my pillow when I'm in a dead sleep and I <laughs> jump <laughs> literally like I'm going to have a heart attack. And it's the same thing all the time. Hits my pillow and I jump him in a dead sleep. I go, well, honey. And then she's, she points like, get in. I pick her up to, and I put her in the bed. She still does it to this day. I go, bitch, just, if you're going to get in, get in. That's so funny that I like that. She's like ringing a bell almost. She's like, ding, ding, ding. She's almost telling me this is what you wanted in life. You wanted us, you got us now cater to me. <laughs> That is great. So here's where I want to leave off with you because I had such a great conversation and you really did help me. And I'm going to actually ask them more. Why, why do you not want to be alone for five minutes in a safe, in a safe spot with your brother? You have your brother right next to you. I'm going to be there. I'm actually going to try to get it out of her. So thank you for that. And I'm still going to keep thinking about my shrink can't work harder on my life than I do, mm -hmm. even though I want him to, but okay, I'm going to listen to you for now. And my last bit of advice is this. It goes by so fast, Daryl. I look at pictures of my kids and videos and I want to cry because I miss them. And was I there enough? Did I love them enough? And I keep thinking that. So enjoy them. I saw pictures of them. They are beautiful. Those two little blondies and what a miracle. Truly, truly. And that is very good advice because it, it's so cliche, but it's true. It really is true. And it's a, it's an exercise in mindfulness. So yeah. it could all stand to be a little bit more in the moment, especially in a world like this. Okay. And even more importantly is try not to get knocked up. 
because I know I'm just, no, I'm just telling, no, 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 no. I'm just telling you, listen, we have friends that were trying for a long time. They finally got their twins. They thought they, she could not get pregnant. And that was her thing. And she got knocked up right after her. My biggest fear is having another set of twins because it's a, a higher probability. So yeah. Oh, that's, okay. So yeah, don't get knocked up too quickly. So just, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I feel good. We're good. good. If, in case you remember the song, you're probably too young. Elvis Costello sang it. Accidents will happen. Only hit and run. <laughs> so be careful. On thank that you. note, thank you for coming on again, Rich in Life, Dar- Dr. Daryl Appleton. Please find her on Instagram and catch her 60-second psychology tips. They're amazing. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. I always I always love our conversations. Great. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. You've been listening to Rich in Life with Rich Arani. If you liked what you've heard, click subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. Or visit us at richinlife.com. That's R-I-T-C-H in life.com.